0: So today we're talking about something I haven't heard much about ever. Inclusion and older people. Besides filling gaps in the labor market, wouldn't it just be more inclusive? And here we are on the HR Hub podcast with me, Andrea Adams. Keep listening to learn about this and anything related to HR. You can also find me on YouTube. Today, my guest is Laura Tamblin watt Laura is the CEO of CanAge, which is Canada's national seniors advocacy organization. She has recently spoken at the UN on related issues. She's been working in the field for 25 years. She's a researcher, professor, commentator, author. She's a great guest for this topic. Hi, Lauren. How are you? Great to be here today. Well, thanks for coming on. So we shall dive in right away. Uh, I feel like age, age on the far end, sometimes we do talk about age, um, Uh, discrimination for younger workers but I don't often hear about it talked about for older workers any thoughts about that of course
1: ageism is the discrimination based on stereotypes perceptions and so on about what it means to be a certain age as you quite rightly pointed Andrea it could be at any age so certainly some people will say oh you're too young to do that or you're too young to know mostly what we talk about ageism is however of course is as we get older. And if you think to yourself, is that a really big deal? The answer is yes. World Health Organization did a a global study to see how ageist we are. And they found out that ageism is the single most prevalent form of discrimination in the world. Statscan said, well, but Canadians were were, were so much better than that. We did our own study to see how ageist we are in Cuba against older people. And we found out that we are worse. 56% of all Canadians are profoundly ages and if you don't believe that pop over to your grocery store and buy a birthday card and see what's in it and then imagine that those types of comments and images were being used for any other form of discrimination and i think you'll get a little bit uh hit in the face with what that really looks like and of course one of the big areas where that expresses itself is in the workplace it used to mean always mandatory retirement now it's still sometimes these mandatory retirement but lots of it is more insidious hiring firing personal development, how policies are created, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important to talk about ageism in the HR context now.
0: So that shocks me. I mean, with all our our discussion around uh, Black Lives Matter and Every Child Matters and all the kinds of ways we can discriminate, discriminate against people, and yet ageism is the most prevalent. It is the most prevalent. I often give
1: you know, talks and say it's astonishing if you think of all the other forms of discrimination out there, and yet ageism is the most, and certainly it's the last, and I use this term very broadly, kind of socially acceptable form of discrimination. And again, it's, you know, you talk about a senior moment, you talk about geezer jokes, you talk about these types of things, and you know, we can be a bit politically cor- correct and recoil from them, but then just imagine everything as overt as The Simpsons. I often say that there are really kind of two iconic ideas of getting old, and they are, like so many other things in this life, really immortalized in The Simpsons. And there's two older people that are really how we think about it. One, of course, many people will know Grandpa Simpson, who is drooling, and he's got the big glasses on, and he sort of falls asleep randomly at different times, and he wakes up asking for pancakes and waffles, and is just kind of gross and embarrassing and wrinkled and, and decrepit. And the other, of course, is Mr. Burns, who is the Ebenezer Scrooge of the Simpsons. He is sitting there trying to take everyone's money. He's you know complaining about this and complaining about that and, and so on. And and those two images of aging are really prevalent. In fact, we don't even really challenge ourselves much about that. One of the ways that that expresses itself in the HR context is assumptions that are unchallenged about what retirement means, and as you know we've doubled our longevity in the last 100 years so that's amazing but when we came up with the number 65 every hr professional will know that number. Every oh yeah HR. right yeah. um the story goes and i think it's at least Mostly true. You know, we have an expression in our house. Do you want the truth or do you want a good story? This, I think, is at least a very good story. And I think it's something like true. It's often repeated. But the number 65 came from Otto von Bismarck. Yes, that one for, you know, the 1800s, right? And pensions didn't really exist anywhere in the world in the way that we think of pensions now. So the soldiers came forward through a general and said, they want a pension. Who've been fighting in this war for such a long time? And the story goes, Audubon Bismarck asked a couple of good questions. Every professional knows how important it is to ask a couple of good questions and said, what's the average age of death? And at that point, it would have been about the mid-40s. Now, for you HR professionals who are also mathematical people, you will know that if you lived past your first five years back then, your chances was going to be living a little longer. There's a lot of infant death, but infection, right? Oh, antibiotics really more. All right, so mid-40s, towards late. Okay. What's the oldest, oldest person we have in the military at that point? So the story goes, 67. And so he actually set not at what you think. He set it at 75, which would be a bit like setting a pension at about 120 years old for right now. And then he needed a political win. And after not paying out a single pension for 10 years, he lowered it to 65 at a time when the average age of death was about 50. In Canada, when we created 65 and thought about it in relation to our Canada Pension Plan, and for those of you in the States or listening in other parts of countries, again, 65 does tend to be a number that is used. Some jurisdictions are 60, some 67, but it's all kind of around the same idea. When we in Canada chose 65, the average age of death was 67. So let's be a bit generous. We didn't design our systems for longevity. But now let's be a bit more critical, because of course we're having a massive labor shortage, which is only going to get worse. And we have old and outdated, you know, Simpsons ideas of aging, which really have nothing to do with reality. We have people who, on the whole, do want to work longer or need to work longer, even if they want to, because everyone's being faced with significant interest rates, high cost of living. High. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All of this should come to the same thing. And yet that discrimination and some of those inherent pieces are really challenging us in the HR world.
0: They are. And so this episode's a little bit about, de- well, it's, it's about DEI and, and that perspective. DEI usually has to do with, ha- has at least in part to do with power because the people who we discriminate against have less power. However, I suspect that a lot of people out there are like, well, the baby boomers, and, and maybe it's Gen Xers too now. They've had so much power for so long. Step aside now and, you know, share a little bit. Thoughts about that and power of these, you know, aging people. And, and every single generation has said that about every other generation. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's always,
1: it's always that same narrative. Uh, the boomers said that, remember, don't trust anyone over 30. That was what the boomers said when they didn't have any power and they were talking to their parents, what we call the greatest generation or the silest generation. And the 1920s one said the same thing about their parents. Th- thus, we all do. And that's more, I think, questions of maturity. You know, power is an important thing and I think we need to think about power in a couple ways. That may be true about boomers who are, you know, kind of white, financially well, oh. able to have saved, predominantly male, predominantly born in that country with higher degrees of education and literacy. So I think it's really important that we think about with all of our good DEI lenses, what we know is that intersectionality is a huge aspect to this. So if you are a worker and you are new to the country, maybe you speak a number of languages, but you're a little bit rough in the one that you're supposed to be working on. You have some, uh, concerns around your financial safety and well-being maybe you've got pressing deaths or you've got other obligations kids in mm, school yeah you are precarious and your chances if you're queer or indigenous or black all of these things layer up in a way that everyone who does DEI and HR is extremely familiar with so it doesn't tend to be about the generational power it does tend to be about who holds that power within the
0: generations all right Fair enough. So, how uh, is ageism showing up in the workplace? You've talked a little bit about it, but elaborate. So, I would say that there are overt and more hidden
1: ways that it shows up in the workplace. So, overt. Have a look at your policies. Like everyone loves to pull out their policy. Look, have a <laughs> look at that. And one of the best things you can do, one of the action items you can do around this, is what we call like an ageism audit. <laughs> So go through, and you can do, if your stuff is digitized, which I assume most people's stuff is at this point, do some find. So anything, the word age, put the word age in your search function of all your policy books and hit enter. And it will age 65, age 25, age whatever, whatever, right? And you'll be astonished to see how many age restrictions are there. Do not forget have to look at your benefits to the degree that there are any benefits that you might know. Know what happens there. So that would be more covert. Let me talk about overt. So anytime that there's a number, you really have to think to yourself, why is there a number? Might be historical, might be legacy. It can also be around words that we use. So for instance, how job postings are put together were, yeah. or how um, how things are described. You're like great, Some great resources around how to age neutral. So fresh, young, and innovative means don't apply if you're over 40. If you're thinking about, you know, yeah, new, uh, one to five years uh, out of university, looking for, like, those types of things are very clearly designed to specifically weed out. If you're saying three to five years experience, that's age neutral because you could have done other things but have at least three to five years experience. So there's ways that you can swap out those overt discrimination visas. I'll talk about some of the covert ones. Some of the covert ones are what happens at certain ages or what are you not automatically considered for one of the most common complaints and interestingly enough one of the reasons why experienced workers leave businesses is they are quietly not offered training and advancement and there have been some studies around this after the age of 50 your chances of being included for training plummets after the age of 50, by the way, I'm 52. So yeah. You're out <laughs> After the age of 50, your chances of, when you ask for additional training and support, being turned down. When you look at your benefits package to the degree, again, benefits may be available for you. You actually have to go and dig out and talk to your, either your contact person at the insurance company or really read the fine print. Again, you can do a a search, you look at the word age there as well. But often there's cutoffs. So many, many insurance companies and benefits companies at certain ages, and it's often 65, regardless of employment status, your coverage either ends or is significantly reduced. And what that means is, as we're having people work longer in different fashions. You know, you could have had a birthday yesterday, turning 65, and be sitting at a desk right next to your colleague who's 27, both doing the same job. And your benefits will now be either eliminated or significantly reduced at a time where we know. So those are hidden ways. Um, an insidious way, we really have to look at algorithms. When you're advertising for job ads using an algorithm, right? Who are we going to show this Google ad to or Facebook ad to whenever it is, okay? You indicate who you want to see it. And you actually, age groups and demographics are one of the biggest pieces where ads are targeted to you. So if you're hiring and you say, I want people like 20 to 40 years old, those ads are only pointed to you if you fall into that age group. So you may not even know about a job or a promotion or opportunity if it's done through targeted algorithms.
0: So I think we can infer from a lot of what you said how we can make uh, a more more age-inclusive workplace, but anything to add? At CanAge, we've been working with the AARP, uh, kind of a cousin organization in the United States,
1: and the World Economic Forum and the OECD on a project, and I'll just say what it's called. It's a bit long to say, but if you look up Living, Learning, Earning Longer, L-L-E-L. It is a global initiative and there's a website which is just absolutely superlative and has ways that you can make sure that your workplace is age inclusive. You'll find videos, resources, you'll find statistics, you'll find ways to reframe some of those job postings. You'll find uh, tools that could help you go through as an HR professional, your different segment groups or, or client groups, or alternatively your internal uh, support groups or professional groups and, and become involved. So the living, learning, earning longer, um, is really wonderful. But step one, open up your DEI policy is age there. It is not Add it start there. Okay. If it's not just add it, like that is the, if it is there, start doing a bit of an internal review and see how are you activating around
0: that okay uh what is the risk of doing nothing there's a lot of risks we know
1: that companies that are multi-generational and focus on an age inclusive workplace multi-generational workplaces are more stable you know that they are more productive significantly greater earnings and dividends go up to shareholders that the churn rate for staff plummets so not just more stable emotionally and socially and work-wise but actually churn is significantly reduced Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and that both younger and older team members are happier so your workplace becomes a happier place and that the culture improves So all of these demarcators are, by the way, evidence-based. The average amount of time it takes if you lose an older employee to fill that knowledge gap again, someone else is two and a quarter years of productivity loss. And where some of them the mechanics or the the processes, we don't have people who know those processes. The backfill is not two quarter years. In some cases, it actually takes the company down. Then there's the kind of legal aspect if you are an HR person thinking about risk management. Yeah. So yeah. not only is it bad for business, bad for productivity, bad for churn, bad for morale, bad for your product or service that you are actually going to do, in a labor market shortage, your chances of getting sued and or having human rights and employment standards complaints against you, is going to sharply increase. So this is an easy thing to start thinking about, and
0: the downside is very bad. I know we touched on this at the beginning, but I know a lot of young workers feel discriminated against for their age as well. Anyways, what do you think about, like, what do you think about the discrimination of younger workers? You know, people's experiences are important. Yeah. And, And, you know, age discrimination
1: is endemic and also... It's taken like all forms of discrimination for people to experience it. It gets into you, doesn't it? It's equally poisonous. So you know, that self-discrimination or the um, the acceptance of discrimination and the perpetuating it, right? Do Do younger people feel discriminated against based on age? They may feel it and they may be it. But the implications for them are far lesser than an older person. Doesn't mean that they're not experiencing it. Ageism, however, is overwhelmingly against older people. It's kind of like saying, and I don't want to equate these, I please, please do not equate these. But when we're talking about domestic or intimate partner violence or family violence, you know, it is overwhelmingly against women mm-hmm. men and women identifying individuals. Mm-hmm. And is it true and possible that men are, particularly straight men, are victims of domestic violence and intimate partner violence? Absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: Is it proportionately as significant, not even close? Now, does it mean that it's not important and valuable? Does it mean that it shouldn't be addressed? And that's the same thing about ageism on the basis of youth. Yes. Is it true? Absolutely. It can be. Is it true? Is it reductive? Is it rude? Yes. Is it part of our overwhelmingly I embedded ideas around age and age value? Sure, it is. But overwhelmingly, it's against older people. And the implications against older people are profound. So for instance, if you lose your job based on age at 22, which um, yeah. is unacceptable, it's very different than losing your job at 62 or 72 or 82. And your chances of getting another job, yeah. 22 are very good, and your chances of getting another job at 72 are very
0: bad. Are fair? I can imagine they're very, very bad. Huh, yes, okay. I find myself in this interview that you've already touched on all of the questions before we get to the question I wanna ask, but I do want to clearly articulate the benefits of having a multi-generational workforce.
1: When we're thinking about multi-generational workforces, it's exciting because it's the first time we're having five generations in the same workplace. Five generational workforce. And we need it because our labor shortage is profound. So, let me just give you a sense of what demographics are supposed to look like and what they do look like right now. So, traditionally, we think about narrow at the top and it's a bulge around the middle and it's narrow at the bottom in terms of workforce. So, smaller number of sort of teens and, you know, kind of early 20s, lots of people from their, you know, early mid 20s up to, you know, 50s. And then narrowing again at the top after mid 50s onwards, it narrows and then it narrows very sharply at about 60 to 65, particularly between 64 and 65 is where it sharply narrows. That's been our traditional idea. Yeah. We are an hourglass with a sharply defined middle point right now. Okay. So we have a booming boomer generation, which is now significantly retiring and we need them not to retire. We have a Gen X generation, which I'm part of which is one of the smallest generations we've had in any kind of recent history. And then we have a millennial generation, which is as big or bigger than the boomer generation. Okay. And then we tuck in again after that. So it's like this now. It's a very unusual demographic. And what that means is we actually can't afford our older workers to leave because there's going to be nobody to replace them. And we need the millennials to be trained in the things that the boomers know how to do. And the Gen Xers not have to have emotional and physical breakdowns because on the whole, they're going to be the ones that are right now, the ones that are holding uh, as of about last year or to the next five years, kind of holding the workforce together. And they have a huge amount of caregiving dependencies, both children and older adults, and the pressures are very poor. So multi-generational workforces are more stable, more productive, have more inter-mentoring processes available, both formal and informal. And some of it, however, we need to address kind of the elephants in the closet. And that is we don't really know necessarily how to interact with older people. We're Because we have so much discrimination against them and because we have segmented our populations in the last 20 years so recently, I couldn't even put my kids in the same swim lessons. And my children are one year apart from each other. So... You know, Swim lessons for when the kid was six is one day. Swim lessons for the kids are seven is the next day. And swim lessons for the kid are eight is another day. We didn't even just have it based on competency. How well do you swim? We got obsessed with age segmentation. And that's coming back to bite us. Because actually what we need is competency and intergenerational learning and engagement. And what that means for people who sell products and services is you need older people because they are more attuned to what older people want in terms of messaging. Products, services, expectations, and service delivery. So you need, you know, as your consumer is older, your workforce has to be as well, or otherwise you miss the mark.
0: Uh, we're getting to the end of this running out of time. Uh, where can someone learn more about all of this? You talked about the LLEL. Anything else? Yeah, the learning, learning, uh, living,
1: learning, earning longer materials, and you can Google with that, the ARRP are just tremendous. Our website has lots of good information on this as well. We're really interested in it. So we're at canage.ca, that's C-A-N-A-G-E.ca, And you'll find out lots about how to stabilize your workforce, implement policies, make sure that you are one of the best leaders in your field. And if you're interested in your own personal development, I do have to say, this is an area that you can really distinguish yourself and um, have an opportunity to move the conversation for a while, at the same time, stabilizing your workforce, making your job easier.
0: You make a great case for that. All right, I'll put all those links in the show notes as well as there will be shown at the bottom of the screen. Well, thanks, Laura. I'm thinking about just how much we'd benefit from having a multi-generational workforce. And I know that I have benefited in my career from a multi-generational workforce. However, we have reached the end of this episode. Thanks for listening out there. We'll catch you next time when I talk with another insightful guest.